Amen. Well, good morning, Salt Church. How are we? Doing great. Uh, guys, my name is Josiah Sabino. I got to work for the Salt Company. Do we have any students from Salt Company in here? Let's go. Let's go, my people. Uh, guys, we have been seeing such a cool work happen over the summer that God has begun in our ministry and so excited to look forward towards fall. Um, hey, I want to start this message by bringing you all into perhaps the greatest point of tension that currently exists in my marriage. It's going to take some vulnerability to admit this, but here it is. My wife, Michelle, cannot stay awake during a movie. For whatever reason, no matter what's happening, she just cannot do it. If there is a movie being played, she is not going to make it. If you know Michelle or you've ever watched a movie with us, you know that this is true. And it's really cute to see her doze off, but here's why it's a problem, because I love movies. I love movies. I don't know about you guys, but I love any kind of movie, especially a good movie that's got like a, uh, some plots and some different things going on. Yeah, plots. <laughs> but like, like a good movie where you've got to figure it out. You've got to be super attentive as you go, and then you get to the ending, and there is this huge reveal. Anything by Christopher Nolan is great. Um, and for me, I'm kind of the weird guy who the best movie experience is going the second time with your friends. It kind of feels like you directed the movie and you're showing them something <laughs> special. I remember I saw Top Gun Maverick five times. That's $75, Reed, if you were wondering that I spent at the theater. Um, but guys, you naturally begin to see the tension. I love movies. Michelle can't make it. And uh, so over the years uh, with my wife, we kind of have this game when we watch a movie that's very like cat and mouse, where her job is to stay awake and not get caught by me. And um, so I'll be catching her throughout the course of a movie going like, wake up, babe, you need to make it. And some of my favorite phrases that she's used when I catch her and she's just out cold, is she go, no, no, I'm watching, I'm watching. And her eyes are completely closed. Or I'm doing good, I'm doing good. Or my personal favorite line that she's ever used is, I'm just taking a short break. I'm like, Michelle, you're out cold. You are not watching the movie at all. So in order to outsmart my opponent, I have tried to sort of implement strategic countermeasures. And it's taken a lot of research and data, but what I've sort of determined is that Michelle can't be near anything comfortable at all. If, if she's near a blanket, if she's near a pillow, a pillow is a curse word in our home. Uh, if she's, you know, laying down, God forbid, the mission could be compromised. And so, you know, I've gone, I, I have gone as far as turning the air down in our home so that she will make it to the end of a movie. Um, there's been a few times that we've gotten really close. I remember trying to show her the movie Inception. If any of you guys know that, that's on my Mount Rushmore of greatest movies ever. And I had everything ready. Our living room looked like a jail cell. There was no blankets, no, no pillows, none of it. And we're, we're, you know, moving through the movie. She's starting to doze off. And as soon as I see her starting to fall asleep, I go, Michelle, get on the ground. I'm going to play with your hair. And I'm playing with her hair, trying to get her to see this movie because it's amazing. And I'm going, come on, babe, you can do it. Like, you have to see the end of this movie. And then, as you know, the movie is so incredible how it ends. And I get so caught up in it that I take my hands out of her hair for one second. 
And I look, I'm like so caught up and there's this big reveal and I'm like, no way. And I look down and she is out cold. Literally just one second of not paying attention. And uh, guys, here's what I've ultimately concluded about Michelle. Is it the single greatest threat to her not making it to the end of a movie is if she gets comfortable. If she takes her eyes even for a second off what's going on, she could be out. And I just wonder, for the people of God this morning, if the single greatest threat to you and I not living the purpose-filled lives that God has for us, not running the spiritual race that God has invited us on to the end, not running with focus, isn't persecution, it's not suffering, but it's instead becoming increasingly comfortable in a world that God never intended us to be comfortable in. And if you've been with us in the book of Malachi, then you know this is where the people of God were at. They'd started to get sleepy. They had lost what used to be this holy attentiveness to the things of God and the promises of God. If you know anything about the nation of Israel, they had been promised for many years since they came into covenantal relationship with God, they had been promised by prophet over prophet that one day God was going to come back to his people and be their God. But now Israel is at a time where a lot of years have gone by and God has not come. And this hope, this attentiveness that God's people, that, that they used to have on God that had fueled them, had begun to fade. And the people are starting to doze off, starting to rest their eyes. If you've been with us in this book, despite looking spiritual on the outside, you know that the people of God, that the nation of Israel underneath the surface was growing increasingly comfortable with compromise. We know about their half-hearted offerings, where they were essentially offering roadkill onto the altar. We know about the men of Israel from last week who were getting so relaxed in their sin that they were divorcing their wives, taking wives of a, of a foreign nation, and sleeping with women of foreign peoples. Well, as a result of this hypocritical, sleepy, dishonoring way of life that, that God would not bless, God had become deeply frustrated, and as a result, he had separated himself from the people. And to really set the stage for this morning, for Malachi 3, that's where we're going to be at. Look at these two highly emotional statements that the people of Israel assume to be true about God. Chapter 2, verse 17, here's what Israel says about God in this sleepy season. Everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them. Or else, where is the God of justice? What Israel is asking is, where is the God of justice? And to really see the deeper question that they were asking. Look a little forward now to chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. It is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider 
the arrogant to be fortunate. And only do those who commit wickedness prosper. They even test God and escape. Do you hear what the people of God are saying? Israel has so lost perspective on God's promises. And they've become so relaxed in this compromised, relaxed state of living that they've now come to the conclusion that it's useless to serve God and ultimately that God doesn't even care about their sin. Where is God? Does he really care how we live? This is the question they were asking, and I wonder if some of us in this room this morning are actually asking that question as well. Does it really matter to God how I live? Does God really care that much about my sin? And maybe you would never say it like that, but it's certainly been reflected in your living. The, the spiritual sensitivity to your life has been sort of cranked down a notch recently. You're not as passionate about the things of God as you used to be. You're not as concerned anymore about dealing radically with your sin. Your, your generosity that you had when you first knew God has started to be snuffed out. You're, you're not as radical about things like purity or about the lost. God seems distant. Other, others of us aren't asking that question at all. We're just completely asleep. There may be some of you who are here this morning and you have no interest, no care as to what God thinks about your sin. Well, it's into this sleepy, comfortable culture that God has a wake-up call for his people. If you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi 3. Let me read to you this prophecy that Malachi gives to the people in response to their question, does God really care about sin? Malachi 3, verse 1. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. So in response to their complaint, questioning, where is God? His answer is, I'm coming to the temple. And, and this is a big deal. This isn't, I'm not just sending another prophet or I'm gonna, my presence is going to come to you. This is, I am coming to you myself. This is very reminiscent of ESPN's The Decision, where LeBron James famously said, I am taking my talents to South Beach. This is God saying, I am taking my talents to the temple. I am, I am coming to you myself. I am bringing my presence to you. Can you imagine if we got a note in the mail to Salt Church that said in two weeks, God will be in attendance at this service? I mean, that, that is the level of weight to this. Now, how's it going to take place? Well, if we look closely at this verse for a minute, God sort of sprinkles in two clues as to exactly how this is going to take place. And so let's put on our Sherlock Holmes hats for just a second. Here's clue number one as to how God is going to come to his people. First, before the Lord comes, God says, there will be a messenger to prepare the way before his arrival. So before I come to you, before I bring my talents to the temple, 
there's going to be a messenger who is going to prepare the way. And that language, prepare the way, was used of people that would come into towns before kings and move out any of the barriers in the middle of the road so that the king could enter the town. Well, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all use the exact same language to refer to one person who is going to come before God and prepare the way. Who was it? John the Baptist. Yes, clue one identified. John the Baptist is going to come and prepare the way. Now, here's the second clue that God says. Right after John the Baptist comes, the Lord will, what's the word? Suddenly. Suddenly appear at the temple. Now, that word suddenly is super key. And we're going to talk about that word in just a little bit. But that word does not mean soon. It's way closer to the word unexpected or surprise. If Michelle was asking me, you know, when are you going to be home from playing pickleball? And I wanted to buy more time. I would say I will be home suddenly. Like, it will be a surprise. You know, it might not be soon. That would be the wrong answer. I just want to honor her. But um, God says, John the Baptist is going to come, and then I am going to come suddenly. Well, who unexpectedly and surprisingly showed up at the temple right after John the Baptist? Jesus. Yeah. His, his most famous two appearances really capture that word surprising. Think of the two that we're familiar with. Jesus comes to the temple as a 12-year-old, and he's teaching pastor's theology. Like, that is surprising. Unless you're Parker West, he knows more than all of us, so that wouldn't be surprising. But, but uh, and then think of Jesus' other visit to the temple, where he shows up to church, he fashions a cord of whips and flips tables to drive people out of church. Jesus coming to the temple will be unexpected. So here's ultimately the point. God makes it clear Jesus is going to come to earth, and Jesus is going to visit his people. This long-awaited Messiah that had been prophesied about, that Israel had sort of lost sight of, was going to come. But before the champagne bottles could come out, before Malachi, the people of Israel, could be excited hearing this news, look at how the tone shifts, you guys. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner, a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. Look at verse 5. I will come to you in judgment. And I will be ready to witness against sorcerers, adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who press the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien, they do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. Did you guys feel that roller coaster moment in your stomach happened as we were, as we were reading that? Malachi says, okay, Jesus is going to come to the temple. The, the Lord you seek, the Lord you delight in is coming, and then it all shifts. But who can endure his coming? 
Who can stand when he appears? He's coming with fire. He's coming with bleach. When he comes, judgment is coming. Remember Israel's question back to the beginning. Does God really care about our sin? Malachi's response, God's response. I'm sending Jesus to purify this world with sin and judgment, and that includes you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these verses from Malachi, who is clearly talking about Jesus Christ, I just, I don't know what to feel right now. Because this language, it just seems strange. Like, let's review the order of events here. John the Baptist is coming. Jesus is showing up at the temple. Fire, bleach, purification, judgment. It sort of makes you ask, which Jesus coming to earth experience is in view right now? Which Jesus is is he talking about? Because I I don't know what to feel right now. I'm sort of comforted by the fact that Jesus is coming and also terrified. Well, here's what we need to know from a theological perspective. This prophecy is something that commentators refer to as a double reference, where two different moments are being referred to at the same time. Malachi isn't like an unstable prophet who's just like, fire, he loves you, fire. No, he's not unstable. He's just seeing two distinctly different moments at the same time. But because it's a prophecy and a word from God, and oftentimes prophets couldn't see this, he was unable to see that they were different moments in time. He's just prophesying about what he sees. Here's the really short illustration if you're a little lost like I was. Imagine driving towards a mountain. A mountain for Floridians is a large, you know, landmass that kind of is tall. That's a mountain. And uh, imagine if you were driving towards it, what can sometimes happen is you will see this mountain from afar and it looks like it's just one giant mountain. But if you got closer and if you got to the side, what you would see is it's actually two. And there sometimes actually will be a lot of land that separates the two. And so here's why any of that matters. And it's super, super important, actually. Both of Jesus' comings are being talked about right now. Both of them are being talked about, which means this for us. We are in the audience of Malachi's prophecy. Because both of his visits to earth are in view here, just as Israel anticipated Jesus to come to them the first time, we also sit on the other side of that mountain waiting for God to come a second time. Which means this. This prophecy, multiple thousands of years ago, isn't just an old, dusty warning to an ancient group of people. But this is God's current attitude towards our sin. God also takes our sin seriously. And he will also deal with it by sending Jesus. Second reason this is super important. Though Malachi sees both Christ's first coming and his second coming, what he sees clearly is that Jesus is going to deal with sin. Jesus is going to deal with our sin problem. And because that's true, this prophecy for Malachi should be both deeply concerning and extremely hopeful. It should be concerning because Jesus is going to deal with sin. It should be extremely hopeful because Jesus is going to deal with sin. 
So let's give some attention briefly to the part of this language that's really terrifying. This side to Jesus that really highlights his second coming that Malachi absolutely has in view here. Let me ask you this. When you talk about Jesus with your friends around our church, which coming of Jesus do you spend more time talking about typically? Probably, and I wouldn't blame you, his first coming, right? We, we tend to highlight that side to Jesus. Jesus being kind of our shepherd, he, you know, he loves, there's a whole holiday around it. He's super kind and he came in a manger and this is awesome. And the, the second coming of Jesus sort of feels like the Uncle Eddie of like Christian theology and Christian circles. It's like, we don't really like to give a whole lot of attention to the fact that Jesus is coming back again. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to me. It's hard to understand. And therefore, we can wrongly dismiss it or not talk about it. Yet, Malachi, thousands of years ago, has the second coming of Christ in mind, which means this concerns us. Here's a crazy thing I learned. Is it of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ, meaning that every one in 13 verses refer or are connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So scripture, Malachi, Jesus, all trying to point our attention when it comes to the sin problem to the reality that Jesus is not just coming once, he is coming twice. And I want to show you the way that Jesus talked about his second coming. Matthew 24, it'll be up on the screen, verses 36 through 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says, I'm coming back. And when I come to you the second time, it's going to be really unexpected. It's the same word, sudden. And when I come back, it will be a completely different experience for different people. Just like in Noah's day, for some, it will mean protection, salvation. For others, it won't. You'll be swept away. Now look with me at John's word in Revelation 20. He also saw a vision of what the second coming was going to be like. This is what's going to take place. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, then I saw, this is John speaking, so he sees this moment, 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, guys, I am just as terrified of that vision as you might be right now. But remember, Malachi is answering... Let's go all the way back to the question at the beginning. What was Israel's question about God? Where is the God of justice? God, do you even really care about our sin? Do you even really care with the life that we live? The wicked, what'd they say? The wicked are fortunate. They test God and escape. And here we get in a picture into Malachi's prophecy, but into what God has to say. I do care about your sin. So much so that when Jesus comes back a second time, every single person will have to stand before him. Every single person will have to stand before a holy God and be judged according to their sin. And if your name, this is so weighty, is not found in the book of life, If our sin never became something that we took seriously in this life, it will mean eternal punishment, eternal separation from a holy God. It may look like sin prospers now. It may look like God doesn't see wickedness, but he says clearly, no, it will be punished. And I just, I want to ask you right now, wherever you're at, wherever you came in this morning, are you ready for this moment? Are you living a life that is prepared to stand before the glory of God? Here's another way of asking that. If this moment happened right now, what would be your reaction? Fear or security, safety, Jesus? Would you be like the people of Noah's time? spiritually disengaged, sort of just floating through life, the next experience, the next job, the next relationship, I'll sort of figure God out later. He doesn't really care. Or would you be like the people of God, focused, attentive? A book I recently picked up this summer uh, is a book you've probably heard of. It's called Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it's been an incredible read. I'm reading it again. And... um, it's sort of a fascinating perspective of how the demonic realm plays, you know, this critical role in trying to drag men away from God. And it's really unique. And I want to show you a line that I read that should call all of us to attention. C.S. Lewis writes this on the sin of just apathy, indifference. He says this, you will say that these are very small sins. He's talking about a report from a demon. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters 
is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their culminative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What Lewis is saying and what I believe we need to hear is that one of the devil's signature strategies to win souls away from God and into hell is by distracting them all the way there. Constantly, just sort of forever carefully moving people's minds off of the realities of eternity. Always sort of fixating man's mind on the things of the here and now. The things that are happening here on earth. Never addressing the uncomfortable realities of eternity. Listen, the devil does not want you to think about this day. He does not want your mind to be on eternity. And yet you have Malachi and you have Jesus saying this just so clearly, don't lose sight of this day to come. Don't be the person who gets settled in here who gets settled into your life, into a life of sin. Don't settle into a world that was never meant to be your home. Be alert. Be focused. This day is coming. It is real. And guys, I don't care right now if I sound like a crazy street preacher because I know if we can become a people who lift our heads out of this earthly fog that we can get so situated in, and we become awake to the heavenly realities of God, the devil will begin to lose his grip on the souls of men. If we can see this day and believe that it is coming, be awoke, have you prepared for this day? Are you ready for it? Is it on your radar? This could come at any moment. Well, amidst this tremendous warning from Malachi that God cares enough about your sin to judge it. I told you that there is also hope that Jesus coming to earth, there's actually hope. And I want to show you in Malachi's prophecy, this thread of hope. And it's really hard to catch, but oh my goodness, it is so beautiful to see how Malachi drops this in. So, here, let's go back to these two verses, and here, here's what you got to notice. There is a small distinction between the sons of Levi and the wicked that Malachi talks about in verse 5. Notice what Malachi says about the sons of Levi, which is just another way of saying God's people. He says, you will be refined by fire. You will be refined by fire. So Malachi is sort of identifying two groups of people here in this prophecy. There are going to be people who are refined by God, and then there's going to be people who are judged. And here's the difference between refining fire and consuming fire. Refining fire is fire that's used by a metalsmith to produce fine jewels. Consuming fire completely destroys. Refining fire produces something beautiful. 
Two groups, one will be refined, one will be destroyed. And Malachi says this about the sons of Levi, those who will be refined. He says, you are going to undergo what? An intense refinement, a deep cleaning. You are going to be purified with fire, with bleach, and then what? It's at the bottom of verse 3. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness, and the offerings will please God. So this implies something about the sons of Levi. They have a problem that they can't solve. The, the people have to be refined. They have to be deeply washed. The language is strong. Bleach. Moms, if you've used bleach, you know that the stain's got to be bad if the bleach is coming out. It says, the people of God will be deeply refined, deeply washed. Now, who is going to do it? Who is going to deeply wash them? Jesus. The messenger, the second messenger, Jesus, is going to deeply purify his people. Now, stay with me. The offering language here, that sacrifice language, is something that Israel would have understood. This is currently, under the old covenant, how the people of God made peace with God. It was a three-stage process. You would get your lamb, you would wash your lamb with bleach and water, you would then kill the lamb, spill its blood on the altar, and then you would do what? you would light it on fire. And this process was how God had instructed his people to have relationship with him. This was the covenant they were in. You make holy sacrifices to me, and I will honor you, and I will protect you. But look at this. What does Malachi say needs to happen to the people to please God? The refiner has to do two things. He's going to refine them with fire. He's going to wash them with bleach. But what's the only thing that's missing? Sacrifice. Blood. Look at what Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says. Talking about the new covenant. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he is perfected forever those who are sanctified. The priests could never, with their process, please God or deal with the sin problem that exists in their life. They never take away sins. But Jesus, in his language of sacrifice, what's he going to do? He will literally sacrifice himself on behalf of the people. Malachi is saying is that in order for you to please God, Jesus has to purify you how? By doing something only he can do, something that we can't, and that is by becoming a sacrifice himself. And on that final day, the Christian's hope is now rooted in the new covenant that Christ has died once and taken away all of our sins. 
in Christ, you don't have to fear judgment because Christ has sacrificed himself for you. Charles Spurgeon says something about refining fire that's amazing. He says, what does a refiner do? He refines metal until what? Until it is so pure, he can see the reflection of himself in the metal. This is what Christ intends to do with us. Refine us by, and purify us by imparting his righteousness onto us through his sacrifice so that we would be pleasing to God. Jesus is going to clean you so deeply that you're going to be so clean that you look like Christ is the language. That is the hope of the Christian. This is the gospel that is crashing through the prophecy of Malachi. Even to this, even as a correction to Israel, there's still hope. Let me just say this. The only thing that separates the righteous from the unrighteous when we stand before God is the refining and purifying work of Christ. When you stand before God in judgment for the Christian, this is our hope. This is our only hope, that when God looks at us, he will see a people that are so refined by Christ, he will literally see Christ in us. That's the hope here. That, that is the language that we have hope in the sacrifice of Christ. He is the only one who can deal with your sin problem. And I just ask you, what would stop you? What would stop you from believing that to be true? What would stop you from placing all of your hope, perhaps as somebody who stands in opposition to God in the finished work of Christ? I just want to finish with this, back to the words of Christ. In Matthew 24, he says this, be alert and be ready. Be alert and be ready. And he compares his coming to a man breaking into your house. I want to ask you, what would be your reaction if I told you that this week, sometime in this week, during one of the nights, you are going to have a thief break into your house and steal all of your stuff? Get ready. My guess is that you would not go home, take a melatonin, and then go to bed. And, oh, sweet, like, I'm sleeping good. No, you wouldn't. You would take immediate action. If I heard this, I would put landmines in my front yard. I would be sitting in front of the door with a shotgun. I mean, I would be ready, like, no thief is coming into my house. Guys, Jesus says, live in a way that you are anticipating my return like that every single day. Live in a way that I could come back at any second. And I would just ask you, as the people of God, remember, this is a correction to the people of God. Are you falling asleep? Are you getting too comfortable in a world, in an environment that was never meant to be your home? Are you prepared for the coming of Christ? If Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? If you found out Jesus is coming back tomorrow, what would you do now? My guess is there would be people you would tell. My guess is there would be sin in your life that was confessed. And my guess is that the people of God would be inspired to be a people with courage and purpose. Guys, the message from Malachi to Israel is clear. Wake up. 
Jesus is coming. And I'm looking at you guys today, and the message is clear. Wake up. Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we, as your people, have a right level of fear anticipating your return. Your language is fierce. You are a God who cares deeply about sin, so much so that there will be people who stand with you and people that are separated from you. And I just pray for anyone here right now who currently stands at odds with you, who has not dealt with their greatest problem, who who has not looked towards the finished work of Christ on their behalf and been forgiven and washed clean. Jesus, you, you coming to this earth to deal with our sin is good news. It is good news because you deal with our greatest problem. You sacrifice your own life so that we could have relationship with you. Oh, Jesus, would it be a people who believe that and would be a people of God who would be alert, would be ready, would be awake, would be fixated on this coming. Oh, Jesus, I pray if there is anyone in here who has is, who is not yet surrendered their life to you, oh, would they come into relationship with the living God today? There is still time. God, we love you. It's in your name. Amen.